0: This is Writing Grief, a podcast for writers who want to transform loss into art. We are your hosts, Rachel Thompson and Melly Walker. We are writing our own grief stories, some of which are published, and others we've worked on for years. We believe we don't need to write grief alone, and finding other grief writers is magic. Welcome, grief writers, to another episode of the
1: Writing Grief podcast. In this conversation, we tried to talk about structure and storytelling, the craft of writing a memoir. As per usual, though, we dig into topics in our own memoirs and progress, and as a result, we'd like to issue you some content warnings in this episode that our discussion includes pregnancy, child loss, childhood trauma, mental illness, suicide, and all the grief. It's, as always, up to you to decide to dive in with us. Into these topics, and we're hoping that we have listeners out there for whom it's a relief to finally talk about these topics interwoven with writing craft, that we're desanitizing the conversation around how writing works. I also wanted to note that I mispronounced Therese Marie Mayo's name in the episode, and that I'm blaming Trevor Noah for this because I listened to their interview on YouTube before the recording. So, for me, this conversation is the heart of the writing part in our podcast's title. We're talking a lot about grief and how to sift through the materials, but it's also just a lot about the technical writing. Looking back, Melly, how do you think we did in saying something about structure?
0: I think we tried to say something about structure. It's still a swirly, whirly topic in my mind. The structure of my memoir has got me confused. And lately I find myself fantasizing about being a fiction writer, about writing a novel so I can fix all the inconvenient gaps and tricky bits of my personal narrative. I'm reading Doretta Lau's collection of short stories, How Does a Single Blade of Grass Thank the Sun, which is so, so good. And a while back, Joretto visited our writing community to talk about the short story. And when endings came up, endings to stories, she recommended The Last 50 Pages by James Scott Bell. So I've picked it up just this week, and I'm hoping to learn something there But right off the top, this last 50 pages book, the author admits that he's a, as he says, a three-act structure guy, which in this episode, I say I'll never do, but this is a good reminder to never say never. (laughs) How's your writing going, Rachel?
1: I'm finding that I'm trying to be a three-act structure guy, and I really have to lean into how the writing wants to take shape, and frankly, just what is possible with the time and attention I can give my writing My life is such, and my pandemic life especially, such that writing in short spurts is the most possible, but it's also really fragmented and non-linear writing that comes out in these writing sessions and suited also to how my brain works and how I write. So the form kind of fits the practice for me, and I'm learning to prioritize
0: the practice. I love it. This is our conversation where we try to say something about structure. Let's get into it. Hi, Melly. Hi, Rachel.
1: We are talking about structure today. Yes. I actually've been writing a lot about structure lately. It's something I'm going to be incorporating into some lessons I'm doing and a newsletter. Every time I do, I get so far along, and then I look back at what I've written and think, Is any of this about structure? Like, what is structure <laughs> exactly? So,
0: yeah. It's. Easy
1: to feel a little lost about it because I guess it's so invisible and then it's also so essential and it's tied into so many other things. This is like a live epiphany I'm having about it.
0: (laughs) For (laughs) sure. And also I think there is a tinge of do I have the permission to talk about something that is discussed in academic ways as well? So that's where... I feel a little bit doubtful of myself being able to have something new to say, because it feels like also an expression of structure that would be new would be to write something that has a new structure. Do you know what I mean? It's almost like you can analyze structure in stories and books that aren't your own. But until you make a new structure yourself, I feel like it might be hard to really know it does that make sense
1: yeah it's like for one thing it seems like really academic analyzed a lot and then the way that we go about it as non-academics neither of us have an mfa and we're talking about english lit courses you know but not necessarily having a full On English Lit Degree (laughs) before we started recording. Yeah, and so I think if we come at it from the other way, then it's like through writing a new structure, understanding the structure of our writing. And for me, that's definitely the part that I work on the most, maybe, or I know that I need to work on the most. And so, you know, I'm going to come into this episode with all my references and that kind of stuff, which is always a sign that I'm not quite comfortable exactly speaking in my own voice about it. But then, of course, we're going to talk about our own memoirs and how we're applying structure to
0: those too. Yeah. So we will charge ahead or we will meander ahead, (laughs) I should say. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We will meander
1: around, maybe not even get ahead. Maybe we'll run really fast and stay in one place.
0: Isn't it hard, the competitive language out of your speech?
1: Yeah. and, And also the idea of... Moving on, like, I think all of this, we're also obviously going to be talking about this in the context of grief, too, Mm -hmm. and the idea of moving through grief versus moving with grief and the cyclical nature of grief and how it comes in waves and Mm kind of like the shapes of things. I think in some ways we're also just going to be talking about shapes, like a line versus an arc versus a spiral, (laughs) all those things that have been used to draw out what is the structure of a piece to illustrate that. I mean, I think a lot of writers, myself included, our first encounter with structure is, I will often say whiteboard, but for me it was chalkboard, someone drawing a line on a chalkboard, straight up, 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 and then goes down a little bit. And then maybe it goes up, there's another little bit of rising action, and then it goes down into the denouement and that structure. And then you just have to go, okay, where you break down your own story and go, where does my story fall on each of these points in the journey that has been presented
0: to me as this line? I remember the line. I remember being a bit mind-blown, thinking, wow, all stories do that? Like all of them? Of course they don't, but that's what I was taught.
1: I think when we're talking about... Nonfiction narrative one of the books that has really stuck with me in terms of understanding and kind of like in a really tough love way and there's some of the tough love and the you must and you know these are the rules that really I want to bristle against and then some of them I need to accept I think that's you know the maturity required in order to go, okay, well, I'm not writing just for myself. This isn't a journal. I'm actually trying to write a memoir that invites a reader to be interested and, and to engage with the words. So that book is The Situation and the Story by Vivian Gornick. And when I started that book, it was just a few pages in when I was like, okay, I get it. I have the situation the loss of my child the family of origin story and even calling it a story it's not accurate according to her and, and this is something i you know i do definitely agree with it's like the structure is what's required to turn it into a story and as she puts it which is something i appreciated to understand although it's a little bit also like technical language that feels a little intimidating but the persona in a nonfiction narrative, is an unsurrogated one. Meaning that the way that we talk or the person we're presenting, there's no filter to it. It's not like we're writing a novel where we can say, well, that's not me, that's a character I created. But it's still not me, though. It's a persona. There's no way for us to present an entire life because it would take an entire life to present that. That entire life is lived in all these big and small moments, and some of which can be significant and become part of the story, but not all of them can be. And it called to mind, to me, the idea of, I always remember this definition (laughs) of being boring because it's something I try to avoid myself too, but it's from Voltaire of like, to leave nothing out. That's how to be boring. And I think that's the whole challenge of writing the memoir from my perspective is figuring out what to leave in. And avoiding putting everything in. And that's where we start creating the persona and creating that structure.
0: Yeah, I think it's the difference between understanding what happened chronologically and then deciding, yeah, exactly. Do you include every single event on the chronology? I have a few times gotten really frustrated with. The writing and grabbed my sketchbook and, you know, okay, what actually happened? You had to go, okay, 2007, 2008, mark them out chronologically to see it because it gets fuzzy again when I go into the writing as to why am I including this particular memory and does it fit? Or am I just trying to say, well, there's this context that you need to know reader But actually, they don't. It's just me explaining instead of shaping a story. And I guess if I think of the word autobiography, that's usually like a chronology of someone's life. Whereas memoir implies a different interpretation and shape, like you say, and focus. Yeah, there's a craft
1: to it. And I believe that craft is the structure (laughs) that we're going to be talking about today. (laughs) I'm still having this sort of hesitance about, is that what it is? The way I'm waking up to this or understanding it more is this idea of the persona, to quote Vivian Gornett again, she refers to it as the instrument of illumination. Without it, there is neither subject nor story. So that persona is like linked to both, both like the structure and then the, I guess, the voice of the memoir.
0: Yeah, this is reminding me of a prompt that I did with Dinty Moore about the I, the narrator I. But yeah, if I think about myself as a persona, it helps me. I've done some acting and some theater stuff. And so when you break down a script, you break it down into beats for your character and you find out what your motivation is for each section. What are you trying to actively do? What are you trying to get from the other person? And so there's ways of breaking down the script and using verbs and all these things to describe objectives and super objectives. So it's reminding me of that. I have this idea of my identity. I have this idea of the chronology of my life, but then I have to take those two things and turn them into something artistic where I've made choices about what order they happen in and who this person is and why this person, which is me but not me, does the thing she does. It's almost like the difference between a story that's plot, 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 plot to characters who feel real and that the choices that they make in the story feel properly motivated or feel, oh, that's why that happened. Because she chose to do this or she reacted to it like this. Those two things feel really close I think it's good that we're talking about them together the persona and the structure
1: I've heard a lot of people in theater refer to that beats idea and I think you did just break it down but could you break it down again just for me and for our listeners what are the beats in a story
0: in theater when I did acting classes we were taught to break down our script. So I've got a script in hand. I have a character I'm playing and I want to go through each scene. So the script itself is broken into scenes, but I'm going to go through with my pencil and I'm going to divide up what I think each beat is. And beats are defined by, I'm going to get this wrong. I'm sure some theater academics are rolling their eyes, but from my perspective, it is more of a subjective task. The purpose is for me to interact with my scene partner or play the character in such a way that they feel like a human. And so each beat would then be defined by what my character wants in that beat. And then it gets involved in tactics. So if you have two characters, one wants ice cream and the other one says, no, you can't have any ice cream. So that's a beat. Let's say this childish character, first, they try flattery, and then they try accusations. It's attached to the motivations, tactics for getting what we want. It gives that idea of there's no selfless act, that every single thing you do is, even if you're doing a so-called "good deed, you are doing it to affirm your humanity, or "I want to." Feel a sense of pride, or I want to assert mm-hmm. my giving nature. So those beats would then help you as you're playing the scene. Would help you really clarify, like the verb that you're, what are you doing in this scene? There's the yeah. script. We're talking about ice cream, but this is actually about a power struggle between a child and a parent, or this is actually about the fact that one person knows a secret and the other person doesn't. Like it gives focus to the scene and allows you to conceivably do a better job. I don't want to speak for all actors that this is how they do it. I'm sure I'm forgetting (laughs) the name of what that activity is all about, who came up with it, but that's just what I remember. And so how that relates to this conversation is understanding that there's a way that Mm -hmm. the persona interacts with the situation that has to feel... Not believable, but it has to feel like human and to understand, to say, this is why I did what I did, or this was the setting in which I made these decisions.
1: You're calling to mind for me that stereotype, or if it is even that, but just, you know, you see this in movies, I guess, but the actor going, what's my motivation for this scene? What's my motivation? <laughs> sounds exactly. Like that, yeah. What it's, it's all about.
0: <laughs> it definitely could be made into a humorous thing. And it's not a perfect analogy, but it is interesting, especially when you're writing dialogue. It's what's the point of this conversation? Like, why is this dialogue happening in this scene? And good dialogue is like, there's the thing they're talking about. And then there's the subtext, right? So you'd have to know. The depths of each character, even if it's not fiction, you'd have to know like, what they want, who they think they are, how they go about doing things, what their history is in order to make that subtext feel real. Yeah,
1: this kind of leads me, I'm going to jump into these questions that I found helped to uncover my memoir structure. And by found, I mean another writer shared them with me and I don't know the source of these questions. I'm sure they do come from an instructor or a book at some point in their essence. And I think I've also likely mentioned these a bit more obliquely in one of our earlier episodes when I was basically answering these questions about my own memoir because this is how I kind of keep it all straight in my mind about what is it about? Like, what's my memoir about? So the first one is, what event radically upsets the balance of your life and the second and this is why I want to jump here now is because it's what you're saying is what do you want consciously Mm -hmm. and then what do you want unconsciously the third is what is stopping you from getting what you want so the idea and I've heard that too about dialogue that every dialogue in a story is like someone wants something and the person they're talking to is not giving it to them It kind of blows my mind a bit that that can be true of every bit of dialogue, but (laughs) something I want to pay more attention to because it's an interesting idea that dialogue is basically kind of a conflict then between people and likely like, yeah, it's not about the ice cream. It's about something deeper. And then the final question that I ask, and this is what we talked about, I think the way we're going to release these, it'll be in our most recent episode is what is the crisis decision point in your story what we call the worst moment or it doesn't have to be the worst moment I guess but yeah. it likely would be mm-hmm. the thing that forces a decision or forces some kind of change
0: yes the before and after the bifurcating of a life kind of that all that stuff yeah so these questions I love that word bifurcating <laughs> I think you used it last time. Yeah. Um, It's one of my favorites. (laughs) Using your word on you. It's part of my charm. See, I mean, even if it's earnest and sincere, I just used a word that I've heard you use so that you would feel like I understand, you know, if you analyze that. Yeah. I don't know. Does every dialogue have subtext? Does every dialogue have to serve that purpose? Not necessarily. Sometimes dialogue is just to make something more vivid or I don't want to list all the reasons of dialogue. But anyways, the questions. And maybe we'll come back to
1: dialogue. It's like a good idea to put a pin in that idea and think about maybe I will go on that discovery and find out. Is it true that every dialogue, someone's not getting something and someone's stopping them?
0: Specifically power, that there's some kind of power that like shifts and goes back and forth between each character, and power doesn't necessarily mean domination or control. It could even be, I need you to understand that I'm my own person, so I will have the ice cream. Like, I can, I can have the ice cream, because I make decisions about myself. Anyway, That sounds like it's about domination and control. <laughs> 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 exactly,
1: bad example. He's, he's telling me not to have the ice cream. Yeah. How dare you? One thing I want to mention about these questions, because I know we're going to get to this too, is that it kind of presumes that arc. So we're back to that arc. The crisis decision point ends up being the climax, right? And the main characters going through obstacles to get what they want in three acts. I think all of those questions presume that structure. Yeah. I know you have also a rant. I mean, I think we both share in this rant too about the traditional plot structure and the line and the shape of it
0: just that you know it again you don't need to believe in or pray at the altar of the ark we don't need to stick to that i mean it comes up in the jane allison book where she talks about the ark being very male and it's this quippy line in the book and then she goes on to describe other shapes but I was like, oh, yes, good. Okay, this is what I think, too. She also thinks that's very male. That's not a new idea, for sure. But I feel like we've gotten stuck on this. We're still figuring it out. Meander, Spiral, Explode was published in 2019. And I'm not saying that it's the book for structure by any means, but it's funny. It's it's, I don't know It's funny, it's irritating that we're still here not that I'm offering anything to move us forward by any means but I'm like it just seems like we're still undoing the expectation of the arc or the line so I don't know yeah I remember
1: when that book came out our writing community was already going full tilt really and a lot of people were writing non-linear works and exploring different forms and writing like a piece that's just a l- list of items or a piece that has no beginning or end that you can enter into at any point or some that are like a wave that keeps coming back or, or one that I really like and that I recognize it more and more as a form that I enjoy because I am starting to see that structure as like the fractal. So it's, there's the small, there's the large, and everything kind of is an echo, similar shape, or there's something similar in each other. But yeah, I get what you're saying about the frustration of, okay, we needed this book to kind of literally, I guess, explode onto the scene and kind of explode that idea. And I do get the sense just because... In my other conversations, my other, po- my other podcast, if I can drop that here, mm-hmm. but I talk to a lot of literary magazine editors and more and more recently, they talk about how they don't need the traditional structure. Like that's become a more deliberate choice in their selection. And so what's frustrating is like that somehow what we knew already wasn't really working is now just like the literary or didn't need to be the default that there are other ways that our lives don't happen in a straight line and that there are other ways to tell stories and those to me are always so much more exciting because the novelty of it the organic nature I think I love how you've referred to it as like working like mycelium fungal networks Branches. Can I quote you on this one? To a giant bowl of spaghetti. <laughs> it's all like, <laughs> yes. I love all those images of how maybe a story can be told. And that doesn't undermine the idea. I think the idea is also true that that structure still needs to be quite deliberate, quite considered. And it does require not Voltaire's the thing. I just, for some reason, I make that into a verb, but that. You know, you have to leave stuff out. And so it still is about those choices of what are you going to leave in that's going to contribute to the shape of that giant bowl of spaghetti or that's going to create those fractal branches off of a story or going to build into a wave or come in several waves
0: versus one single arc. Well, and that's also part of making sense of one's own story. That's been important for me to understand just my own life and a series of events never mind trying to write about it so the giant bowl of spaghetti like I've heard people refer to that in the context of a mental health trauma you know which noodle is my trauma and where is my depression and now I'm on medication okay I'm feeling better which part of it is the medication which part of it is the fact that I've been walking every day or that I have my friend that I'm seeing more often I think any person, writer or not, can relate to that sorting out. And then when it comes to writing about it, we have to be aware of what we're doing and in- intentionally create that structure, even if it feels like a bowl of spaghetti for the intended reader. At some point, I feel like they're going to want to feel satisfied that the writer took them through this whole series of branches and networks for a reason like that it makes sense every noodle has been placed there yeah deliberately yeah
1: in a kind of jackson pollock kind of way too where it's like no there are layers here there's intentionality versus just splattering
0: yeah paint it's also i don't know why i'm needing to say this but there's something to about the mycelium because fungal networks are underground and we don't see them and we know now that there's just absolutely gigantic networks of fungi mycelium under the ground and what we see is the fruiting body so the these mushrooms that pop up above the ground are really just a fruiting expression it's an apple it's not the whole tree you know something about that is interesting to me because I guess Maybe in this analogy, we're showing the reader the mushrooms, but they're not necessarily aware of the entire network, but we've done that work for them so that they don't go, why is that mushroom there? The mushroom hunt sort of feels organized to the intended reader because you've done that groundwork, like the analogy is falling apart, but just the idea that, that, yeah, like you say, each noodle is placed I've heard a lot of memoirists talk about how they f- eventually found the form or once I found the form, da, da 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 like I'm hearing that sentence as an important thing but it doesn't strike me as something that you go okay I'm intending to do this and then it always works out that way like maybe just in yeah. terms of the like our listeners writing experience and even being gentle with myself that it doesn't always come right away you know that the form and structure is something that You might intend to do one way, but then might find out it goes another way. I don't know if I'm getting us off topic here, but.
1: No, and I'm definitely waiting for that to happen myself too. Like I don't, I did this thing where I imposed a structure on my memoir deliberately. Uh I took a specific course on structure called the memoir outline or something like that with Lily Danziger, a writer from Catapult in New York. And I don't know why I reference where she is, but I guess I'm like trying to be like, this is sort of this where that came out of. And I wouldn't say, I mean, that she was someone who was like intensely set on the arc. And she, there was a lot of interesting encouragement she made about finding those different forms. But I did set out taking that course because I thought I just want to be able, even though my brain doesn't really work that way in the narrative arc way, I wanted to understand how I could apply that form to the writing I'm doing I'm just trying to kind of resuscitate this outline and the memoir itself in this pandemic year of not writing as much as I had planned. But the current chronology of my memoir does come from what we talked about in this course the idea that you start at the climax. And and this is a structure that's quite familiar in memoir. And so, in some sense, maybe I think it's helpful to talk about, but also. The fact that it's so common does make me go, oh, what's coming next? But anyway, so The Current is like starting at like a climax or really that moment, that worst moment, and then jumping back in time to move forward toward that. And the example I've used before too is Wild, so that does that. I think The Liars Club does that as well by Mary Carr, Wild by Cheryl Strayed. It is... A way to, again, put you in that situation and then go back and make that situation mean something. It's like the meaning-making of this kind of either weird, intense, difficult, challenging situation where someone makes a strange choice and then moving you through the life, kind of living that life as the reader alongside that narrator, the persona, and then understanding everything that meant when you get back to that climax for me I think that's always been really intriguing it's a way of hooking your reader of being able to engage again what Vivian Gorn might call the disinterested reader like transforming (laughs) I like how she puts it actually transforming low-level self-interest your job as the writer is to transform this low-level self-interest into the kind of detached empathy required of a piece of writing to be of value to the disinterested reader. Where are you at with structure though? Like what's the present of your memoir and where do you begin?
0: I can't quite decide. Sometimes I think the present of the memoir is is now. But then other times I think maybe it is immediately after Ellen's death because or during her death, because meaning-wise to me, that's what makes the other death, my dad's death 10 years before, hop into, like, it gives that death more meaning because they were so different and yet the same in terms of, by definition, choosing to die. And so the comparison is appealing to me because that is what I actually felt. Also, it helps me say what I, what I think I want to say, which is that we deserve to have dignity in death and that choosing to stay here Choosing to live is a, like a constant decision because I live with depression and the fatal side effect of that is suicide. And so I'm using those three stories. I mean, it might be a braid. There's my dad's death, there's Ellen's death, and there's me figuring out something around disability justice or something around mental health. I want to be able to have this third section that puts it into societal context. But then I don't know. That's where it starts to break down about there.
1: I love that idea. It feels like that third section, both of the other two sections are about you and your experience of those deaths, I guess. But third section can even be more about you and your place
0: in the world, I guess. Which is why I feel like I would write from where I am right now, because it's taken me That long to even begin to form some ideas about what we can discuss and discover about good death as a culture. It's still taking me a while to work that out, which is then one of those moments where I go, I'm glad I didn't write it earlier because I wouldn't have been able to interpret that. And so there's a little a little bit of self-compassion I'm offering to myself and other writers who feel like it's all just taking so long that you need that insight sometimes.
1: But yeah, Yeah, I often feel like that too, where it's like, oh, I'm so glad I didn't put this out when I didn't understand this part of my story. I'm thinking I should clarify around, because we've talked about sections, but really the structural thing that we're talking about is braiding those things meaning that you have like an A story, a B story, a C story, mm-hmm. and then you kind of just switch between those. So they're braided, like hair is braided, and each of them kind of, I guess, echoes or builds on the next, which is another mm-hmm. form that I really enjoy when you're kind of going in and out of these different stories. Is that how you're writing it right now, Like though, so that it'll be braided? That's what you said, right? I didn't misunderstand.
0: That is how I've thought about writing it. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I guess, you know, I have written a couple of essays that are braided that are memoir. And one of them is about the two deaths. But it's also not, you know, I submitted it and it was rejected and it's not feeling ready. But the reason I bring that up is because... I was about to be like, I've done nothing to explore structure. But then I was like, nope, that's not true, Melanie, you have. Yeah, I don't know.
1: One thing I wanted to say is I admire that you have the clarity of your writing from the current present is the present of the memoir, meaning the narrator knows how far back she is reflecting. And, you know, anytime we're reading a memoir, it's clear that it is a future self that's describing the past that part of linear time so far anyway <laughs> is how that works but for myself I have struggled with thinking about where exactly to end because I mean the thing is our, our lives are not resolved we don't reach resolution in our human lives so how can we like the idea of even having resolution in our memoirs is just the idea of it is challenging
0: I've even had kind of a thought like Well, if I write this story, if this becomes a memoir and I write it, does that mean that I'll be sort of done dealing with it? Of course not. (laughs) One of my lines that I've written that kind of sticks with me is, one death unsettles all the rest. So the idea that I could be done with it is, of course, absurd. But at the same time, when I'm reading something, when I'm experiencing a memoir, I'm like, okay, okay. Where are we talking from? I always want to know that. I just listened to Adrienne Brodeur's memoir, Wild Game. And I was like, is her mom alive? She's talking about her mom this way. Is she still alive? I just was dying to look it up or whatever, but I forced myself to get to the end. on the audiobook, there's a conversation between her and the person who narrated the audiobook, Julia Whelan, I think it is, and... She talked about how her mother has dementia. And anyways, there was context that I got to enjoy. But then at the same time, like, that book is a good example for beginnings because it begins with her mother waking her up when she's 14 and says she's just kissed her husband's best friend, basically. So then that begins an affair between her mother and this family friend. And the narrator, the writer, is like an accomplice helps them sneak around. And then of course, Mm -hmm. later this kind of experience shows up in her own love life. It goes on and on, but that's a bifurcating moment. It was like, if only my mom hadn't woken me up when I was 14 to say I kissed Ben, then what would my life have been like? You can't undo it. It's there and it changed Mm -hmm. everything So that's an example of starting at the beginning. But then she does go back a little bit into childhood here and there. Anyways.
1: But yeah, that's actually a great example of starting. There's like the inciting incident. And it is so wild and captivating. So that it does compel the reader, I think, to keep going. Yeah. Whereas, like, and maybe it's the strangeness of it too. But I'm just thinking both of our memoirs. Doesn't feel to me, and I don't think to you that that's where we would start. Is like, oh, the bifurcating moment is where we're, now. Now we're calling it. I feel like at some point our podcast will have T-shirts that say the bifurcating moment on them or something. But yeah. Also, I I know what you mean about wanting to Google. I mean, I guess you were doing that while you're reading the book. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. I did when I was reading The Rules Do Not Apply by Ariel Levy or Levi. And the reason I read that book, it came out of an essay that she wrote called Backpacking in Mongolia or not quite that, but something in Mongolia. And it is about, you know, miscarriage or it's not quite a stillbirth. It's like 20 weeks or something, but anyway, like a miscarriage, but a really graphic and horrific one that I'm graphic in the sense of not just how she wrote about it, but what happened. It was very intense and without a lot of medical help too. And having to deal with it on her own there, but at the beginning of the story, I mean, the way it's set up, too, is like, I was engaged, I was pregnant, this was my life at the beginning, and within a month, none of these things were true. But then at the end, you know, without, I guess there are some spoilers, so skip ahead <laughs> 10, 15 seconds if you don't want to hear them, but at the end, you're kind of like, well, what happens to the marriage and what happens to, you know, this other, there's this other kind of potential relationship too Mm -hmm. and so I just had to look it up and then I was on Goodreads as I was preparing everything for this episode and I saw that literally other people were talking about how they had to do the same thing so I wasn't the only one who got to the end was like well that didn't feel like the end of your story actually we kind of want to know the next thing
0: yeah I haven't read the book but just yesterday I came across people talking about I don't know where I was reading it but anyways there that Part of the reviews, I think, even people were like, I needed to know. Why didn't we know? People's almost a little bit like, Ugh, like, kind of bothered. Why and are I, you hiding this? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And also, I mean, I haven't read the book, but is that her responsibility to tidy it up for you? It's her life. The book ends and you want to know more. Is that because you were so invested and it was so absorbing and you want to know mm-hmm. what happened? Just because we're curious and nosy? Or is it because... The structure wasn't satisfying.
1: Like, I think about Eat, Pray, Love, the really big, very well known movies, everything, memoir by. Why am I blanking on her name? I'm always blanking on the big, big writers' names
0: Elizabeth Gilbert.
1: Thank you. <laughs> it sounds almost that it's put on at this point that I'm just like, I'm too cool to remember Elizabeth Gilbert. But I really, I, I do actually really like her and her writing. And I really enjoyed that book too. I read it while I was traveling. It was like one of those great kind of travel books too. I like the shape of it. It was done in three sections and they were based on eating, praying and loving. But clearly because she's more of a celebrity author now too, you know, a lot of us, myself included, know the next part of her life, how the happy ending of that book isn't a happy ending after all, and there's another love story that's even more intense and and kind of beautiful, and all of that I've read on social media. I don't I don't even know if she's written a book about that.
0: <laughs> well, she writes something about marriage committed. She wrote about her husband, and then yes, there's also the story of her falling in love with her best friend. And I don't know if that's a memoir or if that's, yeah, like you say, is that part of her sharing with her online community. But speaking of memoirs, too, like, I don't know why I just use that. I don't even know if I've ever said that out loud. Commercial memoir. that Just like super successful ones, though, yeah. Yeah, Glennon Doyle, I just listened to Untamed. And again, like, I mean, I'm just going to admit my, maybe it's internalized misogyny, but I avoided reading Eat, Pray, Pray, Love. I haven't read Carry On Warrior by Glennon Doyle, but I've absorbed some of her story. I think I've heard her on a podcast or I've seen it on social media. But what I didn't know, which was very interesting, is that she wrote Love Warrior. Now, diehard fans are probably going to be maybe getting annoyed with me, but she wrote Love Warrior. She was on the book tour when she met and fell in love with her now wife. And her marriage was falling apart. So as she's doing the book tour about her getting sober, having a marriage, being a wife, having children, her marriage to her husband is falling apart. And she then starts to fall in love with Abby, her wife now, which then Untamed is referencing, is explaining that story in Untamed, but is also the story of how, you know, she broke free of constraints of various isms and and yeah. institutions and started to live with the same wildness and as the cheetah that's used as the opening scene the cheetah in the cage <laughs> so that was an interesting oh, wow! One. yeah
1: structurally that's an interesting device too the wild animal in the cage I have also not read that book I think I have not read either or anything but I also am aware of her and someone I've like yeah, I've tuned in. She's been on a lot of podcasts of people I enjoy listening to. And I maybe, again, her fans may get <laughs> upset about this, but I also think that the first book was kind of about her fixing the marriage. And so she had fixed the marriage. That was all kind of contained in the pages and also was rooted kind of in Christianity too. So it's like being a good Christian wife, fixing this marriage. And then, oh, That went sideways during, you know, like you said, the book tour. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting to me. I don't feel, I mean, obviously I haven't read the book, so I'm not that invested. But I don't feel super cheated by that because it just feels like, okay, well, yeah, you picked the ending that made sense for this book that was about this subject. And then, you know, something else happened. There's another chapter in your life. I feel the same way about Elizabeth Gilbert's. I think there was something that felt unresolved about Ariel Levy, Levi's I say it both ways every time because I don't know about that story. And then I hook into that about that story because there isn't really a defined ending to my story right now, except for that I have moved overseas away from my family of origin and my country, both of which were gaslighting me, <laughs> I think. And so that sort of, those are themes of like about how my country sees itself, I guess, in terms of its relationships with people and with, yeah, I don't want to get too far into that. I, I'm mind. not even sure that that's specifically going to work, actually. So that's into sort of
0: the identity of Canada and how it <laughs> yeah, okay, <but> no.
1: <laughs> <laughs> seems like a bit too big a topic for this episode when we are nearing the end of this episode, speaking of mm-hmm. linear time. So there is like an action I've taken that feels like, okay, well, that could be the ending it just also feels like the conflicts and challenges that exist in my memoir still exist in my life so it's like if I go back to those questions like and I've said this before too that what I want consciously is to like have a family and unconsciously is to be lovable and to feel love and to be you know it's not even like being part of some grand epic love story which It ended up being for a while and then turning into a tragedy, which that didn't feel great, but it was just more like just feeling kind of comfortable in my own skin in some ways, too, that I think still can be a challenge. And so it's like I don't want to pretend that those things have resolved themselves and I don't know where to say this is the moment where that all was clarified. Yeah. And I mean, I could write this story. There is like a love story in my story for sure, but I don't want to write a love story necessarily. Like, I don't think it's like this epic international romance with this dashing Egyptian man and (laughs) this uh, Canadian woman who, you know, comes from a country that misunderstands things or that she herself doesn't quite understand or see in the, in clarity. I don't know. But
0: that feels like a thread. I mean, to me that's a little bit more real that like you go, okay, I'm breaking free of the identity my family wants me to have, and then you know, and you find love and connection with somebody, and then just as you know, you're walking arm in arm in a sunny day and the birds are chirping, a bus comes out of nowhere. I mean, I literally will picture that in terms of like just I don't know, some people will call it pessimism in my experience happiness is not something that I can really contain so I would like to read a story in which there is that moment of like okay like it's solved like I'm in love like the love story is there but of course it's not the whole picture like that's what I hear you saying and that it turns into a tragedy
1: yeah I'm know. so resistant to that defining me too because that feels really trite and something that a lot of stories lie to us about like romantic love is the solution to everything because you know the greatest love of all is inside
0: of me that, <laughs> I mean that also feels yourself. a little <laughs> <laughs> so. well no but like I'm just yeah I would want to read that story because that's the truth of it I mean it's what is does Alan do 10 or something, he talks about love being about where you put the towel in the bathroom. All those little moments are actually, you know, the fight over where to store the towel is actually that's more real than any sweeping moment where there's wine and music or something. So. I feel so seen by that towel. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Yeah, he's this atheist. He has a secular school. He's kind of interesting, but I totally hear you about it feeling unresolved. But then again, if it's about, yeah, if the core thing is about feeling a sense of belonging or feeling seen and loved, that's an ongoing thing. Yeah, I struggle with that too. And actually what you're saying about The love interest character, the husband, I have that too. Ellen was the mother of my partner and a lot of my grief and my healing is tied up in my partner. And so I'm very hesitant to focus on that because, again, like that just feels too easy. Oh, and then I was able to form a healthy attachment with this man who's a good feminist, and was raised by a feminist. and It just feels too easy. And what is the ending for you in terms of being a mother, mothering yourself? You're a mother now, and that story is not over. I also hear you saying that people want to tamp down any grief or exploration of your child who is not alive. They want to use the alive children to say, well, this is all fine, which is exactly what you don't want to do. Yeah, the meaning and structure is really huge, isn't it? The meaning that you're currently making of what happened to you, it's huge, yeah. There's a big cultural quote that
1: I'm not remembering, but it is like, stories are kind of always about where you choose to end it. <laughs> I feel like I, I don't even know if we should include this in the episode because I'm getting it so off. But I mean, you just think of also like, Big things like colonial history, all that stuff too. It really is about where you start and end a story really defines what the meaning is and who's the victor, who's the vanquished. All of those things depend on where in linear time we place them. That's big, big picture.
0: No, I mean, that makes sense. And actually back to the Adrienne Brodeur who wrote Wild Game, she referenced a Vivian Gornick quote, In terms of writing advice, which she taped to her wall, the quote is, in order for the drama to deepen, you must show the loneliness of the monster and the cunning of the victim. Mm. And I think the fact that she used that quote is really telling in terms of how the story ended up. And so without referencing the plot, but the...
1: uh, It's empowering, right? Like that idea that the victim is cunning
0: somehow... Yeah, that we have our part in it. And that's probably also part of the process of the persona, making the persona, right, is that, I mean, I'm back to the tactics and objectives. We're all kind of trying to get what we want. And especially in an abuser-victim relationship, I mean, it's fraught with manipulation and learned manipulation and the power struggle between those two people. And I think there's something to passivity
1: that you're really sparked and kind of honed in on here too because I think for sure that's where I don't want it to be like and then this man loved me so well that I knew I was lovable like I don't want that story to be yeah because that's first of all that's just not true (laughs) that's not what it was I mean I mean I have very deep Wonderful love relationship with my partner, but I want to have more agency in my story. And I think that's kind of also the point of the story, too, is about developing that agency. I just think also, you know, where we stand in history and in the socialization, all that stuff, that's just a constant struggle because of even just the cultural messages we get about being, again, going to my themes, like unlovable.
0: I heard a woman of color say, we don't need any more white women to be empowered. So what's the way of saying, I make choices in my life. I choose to be live in in respect and right relationship and all that stuff without perpetuating this, like, I'm the director of the ship. Like, without perpetuating the very thing that we're trying to undo, which is the competitive, sort of toxic... Power over kind of relationships. yes. And so maybe that feels unrelated that I brought that in, but... I think it's worthwhile, too, because there's a
1: part and a tendency. There's also the idea in my memoir, because my husband's mother is a figure in my story, and my relationship with her was really special and significant to me. But there's also a tendency to also kind of put that on her, too, and be like, and she taught me what mother's love really was. I think there are these easy treads you know you can kind of like the grooves in the record you can just kind of slip into and be like wow this is this comfortable frame for a story and this is how it should go but I'm learning to be more suspicious of those easy yes. solutions to the more complex parts of life Well also here I am Voltaireing because I'm not leaving everything out and I'm kind of not being super succinct right now. But
0: No, I, I feel the same way about my partner's mother, Ellen, and how she died. And yes, okay, you saw a good death. Your dad had a bad death and you had a bad experience of it. And then Ellen had a good death and then it was a great experience and done. Like, great, you got to redo it. Like, even when I talk about it, I'm actually having the realization that I'm kind of tying it up that way as though... Ellen's choice to die is somehow to do with me. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of funny, right? In a funny and a morbid way, but yeah, exactly. Maybe we're just unraveling the whole idea of memoir right now,
1: too. Though. It's like Because, I mean, I think it is about you, though. That's the point of why we write these books, too. Then we're like, well, this is my life and my experience of this. And one of the things we enjoy about our conversations like this, too, is are just resistant to the tying it up in a bow and to being too neat of a narrative because our lives don't feel too neat. And we mentioned this lightly, but actually we didn't even get into the idea of there's that linear idea of grief having these five stages, too. And our experience of grief mm-hmm. is, again, not following the prescribed pattern. And so maybe that's like also what kind of creates the tension that we feel with the neat bow for how to structure a story. It would be easy to structure it like this, but it just feels facile and it doesn't have that deep truth that I think we're both looking for.
0: And the truth is related to, for me, and I think I sense this about you too, is that I want to write a book that I could have used, like a book that I would have loved to read. And so if I think about it like that and I have empathy for myself wanting that and empathy for an intended reader who wants that, then I don't want to tie it up because I don't want to read stories like that. So I, it's almost like I've put that standard on myself, which means that this whole thing is going to take a little, little longer, <laughs> maybe.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and maybe can we end with this quote from Abigail Thomas? And so Abigail Thomas, in thinking about memoir, says it is basic, our need for story, perhaps because it is such a handy way to carry our experiences around, story as container, so to speak. But the shape can be anything at all. So you can think of your memoir as a soup pot or a trapeze or a funnel. And if this helps you, great. What helped me was deciding that my memoir wasn't going to be, it wasn't going to be shackled by chronology. My advice is to start writing and continue writing. A shape will eventually suggest itself to you. You must trust the writing and the shape will appear.
0: Nice. So once again, the advice is to start writing and continue writing.
1: (laughs) I think we both have to take that advice because we are still (laughs) both trying to find the shape. Yeah. And these conversations, I mean, talking about it has been so useful for my memoir, but it is time for me to also kind of writing toward that shape in some ways i do have this faith that the ending will just emerge because it'll make sense once i've written everything else it'll be like okay actually i should end earlier or no i need to add three more years to it that's
0: perhaps the best thing about craft is that it is a combination of measured technique and choices combined with the faith that it will come to some kind of meaningful endpoint through the yeah. process of a series of decisions and writing that feels bold but yeah what I'm loving
1: about this if I can kind of therapize us a little bit is we came into this conversation both feeling insecure and I feel like we're both coming out feeling like oh yeah we know what this is about and we know why we're resistant to certain things and Yep. So there's this cool confidence that I'm really happy our listeners came with us on, because I know sometimes it maybe it's challenging to listen to people who say, "Oh, well, we don't know what we're talking about, but I think in the end we do we do know what we're talking about." And, and then you, dear listener, who is also writing a memoir, can figure out what you're talking about, too.
0: I think it's important sure. for our dear listener and for us to remember that there are memoirs that exist, that aren't tackled by chronology, and we have to find them and read them.
1: So do we want to do an assignment about the shape that your story wants to take? One of the thoughts I had was to write down all the possible places to begin or end your story, but then sitting where I am too, it's like also just be open to that kind of evolving as you're writing the story too.
0: Yeah, and maybe this isn't something useful for everyone, but if you're in the beginning stages of writing memoir, I think writing the chronology and making a little timeline for yourself is good because then you sort of start feeling more intentional about what you're not including. So maybe taking that chronology, that line, and like you say, Going, well, if I started here in the middle of the line, in the middle of the timeline, what would that look like? Or if I started here, you know, and then crossing out certain events based on that decision as a way of playing around and mind mapping or free writing or something like that.
1: For sure. Yeah. I mentioned that memoir outline course I did. Again, that's the outline and structure I have currently. I don't think it'll end up there, but oh my goodness, having that down made it feel like I have a memoir because I do have a beginning middle and end I have all the things the beats I've hit all the beats (laughs) but then I'm still want to stay open to more organic ways of structuring it
0: I definitely am drawn to honeycomb and the idea of repeating shapes interlocking and making a larger structure that's something I would have to experiment with for sure I got away from the assignment, but I'm just giving myself an assignment. How about that? (laughs) I love it.
1: Our prompt for you is to map out a timeline of events. Even if these things won't happen in chronological order in your final structure, you'll get a good sense of the linear time. You may want to pull an experience from the middle of the chronology and write from that spot, or you may pick an end point in time where the chronology stops and write backwards from there. Is this the right endpoint for your story? What would you need to fill in in order for that endpoint
0: to succeed in the way you want it to? Thank you for listening to Writing Grief. Keep writing, keep connecting with other writers and try something new with your structure. Thank you for opening your writing heart to the Writing Grief podcast created and produced by us, Rachel Thompson and Melly Walker. Visit writinggrief.com for detailed show notes on each episode. We try to link to every book or
1: reference we make in this episode, even if it's just made in passing. If there's something we missed or you want to know more about, you can contact us on our website, writinggrief.com, or at podcast at writinggrief.com. Sound editing by Adam Linder of Bespoken Podcasting. Our podcast art was created by the talented Monica Calderon. Find her at monicadesigns.ca.
0: We support Indigenous sovereignty worldwide and we acknowledge the lands and the first peoples of those lands on which we record our podcast.
1: Our writing practice takes place and benefits from the unceded territories of the Kenyan Kahaka and the Anishinaabeg peoples in the place colonially known as Montreal, Quebec, and the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, Sawasan and Musqueam nations in so-called Greater Vancouver and of the lands of the El Tirubin Bedouin in South Sinai, Egypt.
0: If you're a non-Indigenous listener, we encourage you to learn about the land and the indigenous peoples whose territories you write from. Where were the trees you read in as a child? What is the history of the lands that helped you grow into the writer you are today? Who are the people who care for that land now and in the past? This may take some research on sites like native-land.ca. Thanks again for listening to Writing Grief.